But let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray now that you'll help us. Um, it is ours in this season of Lent to pray that you would be with us in such a way that we would, as always, but perhaps even more clearly, see our sin and our need for this Savior, the very one who is our Lord Jesus Christ. So now as we open your word, we pray for wisdom that you would enable us to see all that is true. And as you speak to us in your word, I pray that we would believe it and live in a way that gives you glory. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to James in chapter 1, New Testament book. James chapter 1. I want to read the first 18 verses. James in chapter 1, please. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is double, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by the Lord. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tests no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the theme that we've been um, uh, hearing uh, from God is that there is wisdom from God for us in the midst of the trials that we face. Have you ever wondered why the Bible talks so much about difficulties? I mean, when, when you come to church, you hear words like affliction and tribulation. We don't use those words generally, but in church we do. They're very common to us because we read them so often, it seems, in the Bible. Now, of course, the Bible isn't all about afflictions and tribulations and so forth. Uh, its main theme is about the glory of God and the joy of his people in him. That's the general theme, if you will, of the Bible. And so there's, there's much here for us as the people of God. We're to live people who are blessed 
People who know the favor of God, who know that they belong to God. That's the sense of it as you read through the scripture. And if you're a Christian and you miss that, you've missed it. We're to live uh, as blessed people, as people who are joyful. That is people who realize and live all the time with this deep and abiding sense of well-being. Why? Because we belong to God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we should live that way and we should see that in the scripture. As we read the scripture, you should always have a sense of blessedness as his people, a sense of joy, a sense of thankfulness. We're to live as a thankful, as a grateful people all the time. Because every day of life we need to realize beats hell, right? Every day of life that we have uh, here and, and, and eternally, you see, is better than what we deserve. And we know that we only receive that because of the work of Christ and his grace in our lives. So we should be a, a grateful people. We should be a hopeful people. Because we, we're confident that all that God has promised will come true. And all that God has promised which is eternal life and the great inheritance that's kept for us in heaven. And it, it, can't, it can't fade, it can't, it, it can't be tarnished in any way, it can't, it can't perish. That, that inheritance, all that is true for followers of Christ, uh, is for us and will be for us. And so, so that's the primary notion as we're reading through this. But we can't avoid the fact that when we read through the scripture, we find a great deal about trouble, about difficulties, about tribulation, Right? Um, and we know in our lives that we really can't avoid them. We know the truth of that, the honesty of, of difficulties in life. Uh, there's the broader sort of difficulties that happen sort of to us that we meet in the, in the broader sense. Uh, uh, the economy changes and when it changes for the worst, we feel that. Uh, the political world changes relationships nation to nation and politics in the context of our own country. Things change and we're affected by that. We're affected by the decisions of others. Socially, things happen. We're affected by the decisions that others make in the context of the culture in which we live. And so all of that can bring difficulty to us. Um, we know that just personally in our own lives, in the context of relationships, trouble can happen. Uh, we experience that. We, we know that there can be financial difficulties, so there's work-related issues. We know, again, relational issues in families, parents and children, husbands and wives, in the context of friendships. All these can bring stresses in our lives. But things break all the time in this world, the stuff that we have. We're worrying about how do we, how do we, how do we manage all the things that we have and the stress that that happens. Pain can happen in the context of our emotional lives as well as our physical lives. And the truth of the matter is we all face death. So there's difficulties that, that come to us, you see. And then there's difficulties that come to us simply because we're believers in Jesus. Those to whom James writes experience that, as we've said, they're refugees. They've, there's a, perse- a persecution happened in Jerusalem, and so these Jewish believers are spread out all over the place now, and they find themselves without homes and jobs and friends and, 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 and social um, um, uh, connections and all of that. So and all the difficulties that come in the midst of that kind of life. Now, for us, most of us haven't experienced what we may consider to be direct kinds of persecutions for our faith, but we've we experienced some of it. And the truth of the matter is, as we increasingly become the minority culture, <laughs> we may face it uh, even more. I mean, just think about this. Think about if everybody you knew knew everything you believed. 
Now, this isn't to place a guilt trip on you like you should go out and dump everything on everybody because there's wisdom in how we share things. And, and sometimes we can share things that we believe true in Scripture that really get us off track in trying to lead people to Christ. But, but just think about that for a moment. If everybody knew everything you believed, you might be in serious trouble. And, and, and so one day that may happen. We may be exposed in every place or at least associated in such a way that we'll experience what we haven't really experienced, but what they experienced in the context of persecution. So the Bible's really honest about trouble, about difficulties, about afflictions, about tribulations, those kinds of, of words. So it's important for us then, of course, to pay attention. So, so James really is laying out as a wisdom book, how do we live wisely in the midst of trouble, in the midst of difficulties that come our way? How do we understand them well so that we can live successfully, successfully by God's standards, not the world's, not our own, but by God's standards? What's really success there? What's really navigating these difficulties wisely? And so he lays that out to us and he says, well, here's what you need to know. I'm not going to tell you the details of the hows and whys you're in this situation or you've met this difficulty. But here's what you need to know in the midst of it. You need to know that God has an intention for this and it's a good intention. It's your maturity. And to mature you, which makes you a person who's lacking nothing in terms of the things of God that you need to live. In order to mature you, these trials... These difficulties are necessary. So when you meet them, understand that God's at work and your faith is being tried, not so you'll fall away. The intention of God isn't that you fall away, but the intention of God is that your faith is actually strengthened, proven, that is, it gives you assurance that you really have it, and it purifies your faith. So there's what's left at the end of the day is this mature believer who isn't tossed around like a a cork in the ocean, right? That, that that's the sense that you're, you're stable in him. And, and, and knowing all of that, you see, means that you can count it joy. That even in the midst of it, you know that you're still well. That all is well. This doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. This doesn't mean that you're going to fall away. This, this means that you're going to be strengthened. And so even in the midst of there's something within us that still can be counted as joy, thought of as joy in this circumstance, in this situation. He said, that's the wisdom you need to know. And then on a day-to-day basis as you're navigating these difficulties, pray. Pray that God will help you. Pray that God will give you wisdom in the midst of it. And as he speaks to us then through his word... Because it's assumed that if you're coming to him in faith, you want his wisdom. And if you want his wisdom, you have to go to his word. And so if you, when you come to his word, that he'll actually teach you and speak to you. And, and you'll learn and you'll understand how it is that you're to wisely, successfully navigate these difficulties. That is to live, really, a godly life in the midst of them. And he says, I want to give you a couple of examples so you'll know. If you're a poor Christian... If you're going to live wisely and as you're experiencing this poverty, this poor situation, lowly situation socially, economically, however, here's how you navigate that. Don't think of yourself like the world thinks of you or it will destroy you. They think you're nothing, but you're not. You're a child of God. So boast in your high position. 
That's how you're to think of yourself if you're poor and a believer in Jesus. If you're rich and a believer in Jesus, don't think of yourself the way the world thinks of you. They think you have it all together and that you're really good and that because you have all of this and you must have been blessed by God. No, 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 no. Boast, exult in your low position. Understand that you're a sinner in the sight of God without hope and except in his sovereign mercy and that your, your spirit is completely bankrupt and you have nothing to offer him. So think about that. Don't think about yourself like the world does because if you do, then you'll, you'll die. So think of yourself as a true way and know that you have nothing really, no matter what the externals look like, that if you have nothing really and you just belong to him because of his grace. That's living wisely, not getting caught up in how the world thinks of you, but being caught up in what is really true, you see. And the end result then of this wisdom is life. You receive this crown of life. That's where it's all headed. So trust him. It's sort of like the Israelites. There is a promised land. Now you're going to go through difficulties, but trust me, in the midst of this, realize that you don't live by everybody else's words. You don't live by all your stuff. You live by the promises of God. You live by the truth of God. So, so trust him in the midst of it, even when it doesn't look like it's going to work out. It really will, because God is really with you, and that is really the truth. That's wisdom. But then notice what he says next. He moves, really, from this sense of trials to temptations. He moves from trials to temptations in verse 13. That's where we are. That's what we're picking up today. So he moves from trials to temptations. And he's able to do that for a couple of reasons. One is one by the language that he uses. And the other is by the logic that he uses. All right? The language is, as I mentioned, I think a month or so ago, uh, when we were earlier in this passage, that the word translated trials and the word translated tempt or temptation, tempt, tempted, uh, is the same Greek word family. One's a noun, one's a verb. But, but, but same family of words could really go either way. If you're, translating this word you could translate it both trial sometimes it's translated test sometimes it's translated temptation what makes one translation right if you will over the other is the intent of it is it have a good intention the trial or a bad intention is it to lead you to faith or is it to lead you to sin to lead you to sin is to tempt to lead you to, to faith is simply a trial that tempted, you're tried, and your faith becoming stronger. Read a number of these, even in the New Testament, as these words are bantered around. Um, there are various ones who come to Jesus to test him. You get the feel of that when they come to test him, you know, it's not a good thing. Um, Jesus, when uh, he was faced on that day with thousands of people who were hungry, he turned to Philip and he said, where are we going to get the food? <laughs> and the scripture says he said that to test him. What was Philip going to come up with at that moment in, in, in time? We know that we have a prayer that we're to pray. We'll pray it later in this service. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When I was in seminary, Karen and I went to a church and the children went to a church um, 
called Lanesville Congregational Church. It was an old church. It was built in the late 1800s. The bell in that church had been cast by Paul Revere. So there you go. That's this little church. But it was pastored by a pretty snooty professor at the seminary who was pretty persnickety about translations. And so when we got to the church, we're praying the Lord's Prayer as a congregation. And we get to this expression. And it said, lead us not into trial. And, you know, we all said temptation because we weren't really reading the thing. And uh, kind of stuck out. There were like 80 New Englanders and us. And even though they didn't look at us, you knew they were. Right? And so it's just a different translation, different spin, really, right? And then that passage we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. We take sort of good heart in that, if you will, because we realize that what happens to me happens to everybody. But it could really be translated, and is in various versions, as uh, no trial has overcome you. It's sort of a more neutral kind of thing. How do we really take it? But then we have that passage in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke, where Jesus, the scripture says, is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil doesn't say he's being led by the Spirit to be tempted by the Spirit. It doesn't say he was led by the Spirit to be tried by the devil. We know what the devil's intent was. And so it was to tempt him, to tempt him to sin. So in these previous verses, the context from verse 2, and then mentioned again in verse 12, that kind of why I read them together last Sunday, or kept them together last Sunday as I did, that... Um, it's, it's kind of bookends. You begin with trials in verse 2 and have trials in verse 12. And so we kind of keep that all together, that piece. But, but, but this sense of, of God doesn't tempt us. That's going to be James' point. He doesn't tempt us. He tries us. Why do we translate it trial? Because it's a difficulty, yes. Something comes into our life. But God's intention isn't that we sin. It isn't that we fall away. But God's intention is that this situation strengthens us, right? And proves our faith and purifies it. That's his purpose. He's not tempting us in the midst of this. But then you really have to ask the question. I think that's where James comes here. He asks the question, if that's the case, why is it that when these difficulties come, I sin so much? Because there is that connection. You can just see it logically. When difficulties come, there's a sense in which I'm faced with this moment. Do I trust God or don't I? Like with the Israelites, as I read earlier from Deuteronomy in chapter 8. There's no food. What do I do? Do I grumble and complain? Do I say God isn't faithful? Or do I trust him? In the midst of that, you know that when difficulties come. And, and I, I know because we've had many, I've had many conversations in the last few, few weeks about this. That when trials and difficulties come, we know, because we read the Bible, we know God's intention. Yet why then is there this struggle in the midst of it to maintain faith? Well, that's part of the trial. But why then do I find myself at times really then... Uh, Sinning, sinning. We, we know this. Um, one author made this, this list. He said, during the time of trials, will we follow God or will we be led into sin? Will we count it joy or curse God? 
Will we doubt his love, his care, his compassion, his mercy, his promises to be with us? Or will we trust him? Will we follow his wisdom of the worlds? Will we be led to a deeper faith? Or led to something immoral or unethical? Will we grow in patience? Or will we lose our tempers? Will we be loving or spiteful? Will we be thankful or envious? Will we be kind or inconsiderate? Will we be compassionate or selfish? Will we rely upon God for comfort or something else, like alcohol, drugs, or pornography? Will we tell the truth or lie? Will we trust God or steal? If we're hurt by another, will we love and forgive and bless and pray? Desire the best for? Or will we... Or will we be bitter and slander and hold court in our minds? Don't you do that all the time? Somebody hurts you, you hold court in your mind with them. Don't you always win? Right? We always win in that. They're always wrong. In fact, the more we do it, the wronger they get. Right? Hold court in your mind. Financial difficulties. Do we complain? Are we tempted to shade our integrity to do better? To lie on a resume to get a job? To be anxious? When we're ill, do we worry? Are we anxious? Do we grumble against God? Finding ourselves to be unkind, overly self-centered? When you're aggravated by your parents, by your kids, by your friends, by your roommates. When you're harassed for being a Christian. In fact, as, as we walk through James, and we'll do this, we'll see uh, the difficulties that they face in these trials and tests uh, later in chapter 1. Uh, will they actually act on the word that they know? Or will they just let it run around in their minds? Will they hear it only? Or will they do it in the midst of the trial? What they know to be true. Chapter 2, when, when rich people come, will they... Favor them over others, perhaps in order to get favor from them. Is, will that be their trust? If I favor the rich, then they'll trust me. They'll, they'll favor me and, and I'll get out of my poverty. That'll be the ticket, you see. Am I going to do that? How, what am I going to say? How am I going to speak to others? Chapter 3. Will I bless them in the midst of the trial? Or will I curse them in the midst of the trial? Where will my wisdom come Will, will it be the wisdom of the world and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be jealous and I'll put myself first regardless of everyone else? Or will I live a peaceable, gentle life? Will we quarrel in the midst of these difficulties and trials? You know this in your own family life. When difficulties come, hmm, do we argue more or less? Are we going to quarrel in the midst of this? But what's the wisdom of, of God? Are we going to live our lives not thinking about how God is involved in everything? Or we'll just plan our lives regardless of what God wills? Will we be patient with each other in the midst of difficulties and trials? Will we pray for each other in the midst of hurt and pain? Uh, will we retrieve one another? When we fall away. How are we going to live in the midst of these trials? That's the real sense of it. And notice the command that James gives. Verse 13. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why would he say that? Why would he say when we are in a trial situation and we are being tempted, lured away to sin. Why 
does he say, don't say you've been tempted by God? Well, because when we say we've been tempted by God, what we're saying is my sin is really God's fault after all. We're really blaming him. You see, we're, we're blamers at heart. You remember when Adam sinned and Eve sinned, what happened? Uh, God showed up, was walking around. Adam, where are you? He finds Adam and Eve and, and, he, and, and Adam. And he says, what, what's up? And he says, well, we were naked. And God said, oh, don't do that. What's going on? And he says, well, God, it's this woman. You know, she's at fault. But then he says even more, it was this woman you gave me. It's really your fault after all, God, you see. And so there's this this sense, you see. Um, The Israelites, as they're going through the wilderness and they're finding themselves in difficulty, they begin to complain. What do they say? Well, back in Egypt, at least we had food and then you let us out of Egypt. And here we are. We're hungry. No cucumbers. What are we going to do? Right? Silly as that is. When we look at it. But we blame. And our ultimate blame, you see, goes on God. Sometimes it's, it's theological. Like many argue that they were, they were being theological here. They were reading passages of scripture about how God hardened people's hearts and they sinned. And, and so we have this the, theological thing going on, especially in our tradition. We say, well, God is sovereign over all things. God ordains all things that come to pass. I sinned, he ordained it, it's his fault, right? Even our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, deals with this in chapter 3. The Westminster divines write this, uh, paragraph 1, says, From all eternity, and by the completely wise and holy purpose of his own will, God has freely and unchangeably ordained whatever happens. That's just what it means to be God, Right? This ordainment does not mean, however, that God is the author of sin. He's not. So they have to do this. No, 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 no. Even though he ordains all things that come to he's not the author of sin. That's James' point right here. He's not the author of sin. Why isn't he the author of sin? Well, he says that, that no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In other words, there's nothing in God that's evil. There's nothing in God that delights in evil. He can't be tempted by it. There's no lure at all. When God sees evil, in fact, the scripture says he can't even look upon it. But if he saw evil, he'd say, no, 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 I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want to go there. That, that has nothing in it for me. I, 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 there's no desire at all for evil in, in God. And therefore, he couldn't desire evil in anyone else. So, of course, he can't tempt anyone else. And you might say, well, well, I read in the Bible about Pharaoh that God hardened his heart. Does that mean that, that Pharaoh could blame God and say to God, uh, you know, you, you know, you hardened um, my heart, therefore I had no choice but to sin. Well, when I read or hear that kind of thing, I think, um, how would John Calvin handle that, right? I mean, he's the Calvinist of Calvinists. So how would, how would he handle that? Well, here's how he handled that. Listen to this. He said, but the whole doctrine of Scripture seems to be inconsistent with this passage in James For it teaches us that men are blinded by God or given up to a reprobate mind 
and delivered over to filthy and shameful lusts. So, so he's playing, can I say this of him, the devil's advocate. He's saying, well, you know, I don't know if James is really right. But then he says, to this I answer, that probably James was induced to deny that we're tempted by God by this reason, because the ungodly, in order to form an excuse, arm themselves with testimonies of scripture, like God hardens people's hearts. But he says there's two things to be noticed here. When scripture ascribes blindness or hardness of heart to God, it does not assign to him the beginning of this blindness, nor does it make him the author of sin so as to ascribe to him the blame on all these things, on all these two things only does James dwell. In other words, he's saying, God doesn't start us out. If our hearts are hardened and even he acts to harden them more, it's only because it was already in there in the first place. Scripture asserts, Calvin goes on, that the reprobate, quite dramatic in his language, are delivered up to depraved lusts. But is it because the Lord depraves or corrupts their hearts? No. For their hearts are subject to depraved lusts because they're already corrupt and vicious. But since God blinds or hardens, he's not the author or minister of evil. Uh, Of course not. But rather in this manner, he punishes sin, renders it a just reward to the ungodly who refuse to be ruled by his spirit. It hence follows that the origin of sin is not in God. No blame can be imputed to him as though he took pleasure in evils. It's just not in God. No matter what else, how our theological logic may run, it simply isn't in God to do evil or entice us to do evil. It's never his fault. Then whose fault is it? Next verse. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And when and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth a death. We know this. When Adam sinned, we sinned. And thus all from him inherit spiritually the sinful condition. It's in us. Genesis 6, verse 5. God observes the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. Jeremiah 17 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things who can trust it. It's corrupt, you see. Because of Adam's sin, not only is there this guilt, not only is there this judgment, but there's this corruption in our hearts. So when Jesus would come on the scene, he would speak of it. For instance, in Mark in chapter 7, in verse 21, Jesus very um, convincingly speaks to us of what's in our hearts. Verse 14, I'll start there. And uh, he called the people to him, and again he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that's going into him that can defile him. The things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then verse 20, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, you see. And they, they defile a person. And that's the sense of it. But see, our 
go-to is to blame. We blame God, and if we don't blame God, we blame our environment, right? It's the situation I'm in. It, it caused me to do this. It's the family that I was raised in. My mom was anxious, so I'm anxious. My dad yelled, so I yell. My parents were materialistic, so I'm materialistic, right? So we blame all of those things. We blame uh, even events that happened in our past because this happened. That's why I sin like I do. And it may certainly influence all those things, but still the bottom line is we can't blame those. All of these things somehow come from our own, our own hearts. We blame uh, the world that we, were, that we find ourselves. I mean, we find ourselves today in a world that pornography is a, clip, a click away. And so we say, well, how can we resist that? I mean, I mean at least in other generations, it was more difficult to, to, to get this stuff. But, but look, at, look at the world that I live in and, and, and the bottom line still is that however difficult the world that we live in makes it, it's still no excuse for us. We blame, well, I was born in this part of the country or that part of the country or that part of the world. And so it's we, this is how we handle those kinds of things. And if it's a sinful way to handle it and you learned it from your environment, you're still your fault. It's still weird to blame, you see, for that. We can't escape the blame and we mustn't. Blame genetics. Sometimes we blame our Myers-Briggs, if you know that. This is my temperament. This is who I am. So that's why I respond this way. Uh, and you go, well, no, not really. You're still responsible, you see, uh, regardless of the temperament with which you appear to have been born. Can't blame your nationality. I'm, fill in the blank, thus I have a temper. Thus I'm impatient. Thus I'm whatever it is. You can't blame that. You can't say, I was born this way, thus my sexual orientations are this way. Your sexual orientations may be that way for whatever reason, but still, if they're contrary to the will and the word of God, still, we're, you're, I am to blame for that. Whether it's heterosexual lust or homosexual behavior, whatever it is. So you see, we're still to blame, regardless of how we were born, regardless of where we were born, regardless of what family we were born into, regardless of... God's decrees, we're still, ultimately, we're the ones responsible. It's important for us to know that. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, theologian of a previous generation, ran into trouble with a man named Hitler, uh, wrote this in a book called Temptation. He says, with irresistible power, desires seize seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love or fame or power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. The only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust arouse, the, the lust Thus aroused, envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes. Expected of me now? Here in my particular situation? To appease this desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. 
Thus James writes, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. He's using a fishing illustration. I'm not a fisherman. But fish have to have a desire for whatever that lure is. If they don't, they won't be tempted by it. Somehow it must attract their attention, must attract something that's true of them. And when we're in situations, it has to attract something true in us. When, when David looked upon Bathsheba and she was bathing, there was something in him that was lured by that. Perhaps even reasons. Sexual desire is good. This word desire isn't isn't an evil word, it's just a neutral word. But but when it falls in an, in a sinful heart, it becomes a sinful, evil desire, you see. So you look, sexual desire isn't bad. I can provide for her, I can care for her. How could that be wrong? Her husband's away, she needs someone in her life. And he was hooked by that, all of that desire, you see. Eve, when she looked upon whatever fruit that was in the tree, she saw that it was good for food. Oh, the other trees are good for food. That's good. It would meet a need that I could, I could be wise. What could be wrong with that, really? You could play it through your own life. Now you're lured. Now you're drug away. It isn't God that's luring you. And dragging you away. Even though you may be in a situation that's very difficult. Know his intention for it. But know that there's something in you that could be lured to sin careful. Lured enticed. And then he says, here's what you need to know about yourself. And about this temptation and this sin. It it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully gross, it kills you. It's aimed to destroy you. You think it will satisfy you something in you, and it will not. It never will. It can't. It'll only kill you. Whether that's lust, or whether that's bitterness, or whether that's lying, or whether that's cheating, um, whether that's your own selfishness and ambition, or your own jealousy, whatever that is, whatever's being lured in the midst of that trial. No, it'll kill you. So we need to know something about ourselves in order to be wise in the midst of trials. Be careful because you know your own heart. But secondly, know something about God. That his intention really is only good. Notice verse 16. Don't be deceived, brothers. Don't be deceived. When he says that, what he means is, don't believe a lie. Don't be deceived. Don't think it's God that's tempting you. Here's where God is in the midst of this. This is why you can depend upon. This is why you can pray, lead me not into temptation. Help me in the midst of them and deliver me from this evil. Why can you pray that? Because he's good. He doesn't want you to sin. That's not his desire in the midst of this. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, down from the Father of lights. The Father, the Creator, the one who made all the lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now we know, because of the time of the year we're in especially, that they, those lights vary. I mean, in a given day. We go from, from dawn to light to, to, to night, Right? I missed dusk in there. But, but it's, every day we see these shadows changing. God isn't like that. He's the creator of that, but he's not like that. He never changes. Everything about him 
is good, the wonderful antiphonal expression. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Put that in your head. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That's true in every circumstance and in every situation. And the question is, how do we know that? We know that, James says, because of his own will. That is, his own goodness. Out of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, James means by that the same thing that Jeremiah meant when he said God will write his word in our hearts and put it on our minds. He he means the same thing that Ezekiel meant when he said that he'll take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and give us his spirit to cause us to walk in his ways. He meant the same thing that Jesus meant when Jesus said you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. He meant the same thing that Paul meant when Paul says that in Christ we're new creatures, we're new creations. What he means is that we've been brought forth by the word of God. That when the word of God came upon us, when the gospel came upon us, by his spirit he worked in such a way to give us life. And he says, now, what else can God do to prove that he's good? He saved you. You didn't do anything. It was his powerful word, the word of his gospel that came to you, that saved you. So remember, there's something in you that inclines you to evil, but God is good. He saved you. Trust him all the time. God is good. Trust in him. So we come to this table for that affirmation. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want you to think about this. What do you think about when you think about this bread? And you think about me. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What we're declaring is that God is good. And he's good to us. That he brought us forth by his word. And we become like first fruits. They, the beginning of all that was to come. We are the continuation of all that's to come. Knowing there is something that is to come. And it's secure for us. And that's the sense of it, you see. So in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, counted joy. Why? Because God is good. What if I'm tempted to sin? Well, be honest about that. Be honest about that. So that you can turn back to God. Don't think. Don't blame. Don't think it's somebody else's fault. Own it. Whatever your background, whatever your genetics, whatever your theology, whatever that is that could cause you to blame someone else. Or blame God. Or even just the natural realization that because of how I've lived, this is more difficult for me. It may well be. Because of the circumstance, this is more difficult for me. It may may well be. But the truth of the matter is, own it still. Don't 
blame. Except that you're poor in spirit. Except that you have nothing to offer God. That he would receive you. Understand this to be true. So that you embrace your weakness. So that he says his power is perfected in that weakness. So you're honest about it. God, help me. Lead me not in this direction, but but deliver me from evil. Please help me in the midst of this. And know then that God really is good. That's his desire too. That's his desire too. So trust him in that. You say, well, how can I trust him in that? Oh, yes, I remember now. He gave his son for me. That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Yes. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Let's pray, Father. For all of us, I pray, that you would be with us even now. Whatever is sailing through our minds, about the difficulties we face and perhaps even the failures and the sins that have come out of that. That at this moment in time, quietness of this place, that we would own our own sin. We can all point to various and sundry reasons why we may be the way that we are in terms of our own sin patterns in life. We understand upbringing is significant. We understand that experiences are significant in our lives. We understand that the world in which we live draws us in various ways and lures us with various things. But yet, at this moment, right now, enable us, I pray, to own our own sinful thoughts and attitudes and behaviors and to take great refuge in the fact that you're good and that we know you're good because you've brought us forth by your word and we're first fruits we know there's more to come more good to come so help us now around this table now I pray that you would set this bread and this juice apart in such a way that we would know that all oh, this is true, that you're good and we'd see your goodness today and we'd be grateful for the salvation that is ours we'd live with hope knowing that you're in our lives even in the midst of the difficulties of our lives and even if things get more difficult for us in various ways, still we know that your intention in every moment in time is to grow us up, make us mature, cause us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, and that that's the best thing ever because that leads to life. And so we pray, Father, that we would trust your word and no one else's. That we would live by your word and no one else's that we may be wise. Meet us, Jesus, at this table. In Jesus' name.